Christ Church Cathedral in Oxford, England has a famous old window. The window is actually 400 years old, and one panel stained glass, the other side is painted glass. But one panel depicts an Old Testament prophet sitting under a plant, and the other panel depicts a city that's in the distance. And as you look at the city, you can see houses and streets and shops. And when the light comes in and the light hits it correctly, uh, the, the, the whole window, the city is illuminated. And you focus in on what the prophet's looking at. The light has a way of illuminating what's important. And the, the, the artist that created this window in this cathedral does just an incredible job of telling a story of what's happening in Jonah chapter 4, because the city is supposed to be Nineveh, and the prophet is Jonah. And in the same way that the light comes in and hits this window and illuminates what the, where our focus should be and what is important, the same way in Jonah chapter 4, as the writer of Scripture is telling the story, he's drawing our attention and focus into what's most important, what God wants. And just like in this window where the focus is on the city of Nineveh, Jonah 4 reminds us of, of God's heart for people. We've been in Jonah for the last six weeks, and we're finishing up that series today. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jonah chapter 4. Up until this point, many of you know the story of Jonah. He's uh, called by God to go and, and, and preach a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. He decides not to. He doesn't listen to God. He ends up running. Goes to like the opposite side of the world of where God calls him to a place called Tarshish. And on the way, God sends a storm. Uh, all the sailors are freaking out. They think they're going to die. They end up throwing Jonah overboard. God sends a fish. It swallows Jonah. It keeps him for three days. It becomes his deliverance. It takes him back to land. Then Jonah has a second chance. God calls him. He goes to Nineveh, and he preaches one of the shortest sermons ever. It's like five words in Hebrew. And it's one of the most effective sermons in ever because everybody who hears it turns their heart back to God. There's this great repentance. And you think that Jonah would be excited about this, to, to give a message that was so short and so effective. But the story picks up in Jonah chapter 4, right after he realizes that God is going to relent and not send calamity to Nineveh. So let's read in Jonah 4. It says, but to, jo uh, but to Jonah, Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were our gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Verse 5 Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. 
Everyone in Phoenix knows what that's like. He wanted to die, and he said, it, it would be better for me to die than to live again. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. In verse 10, the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? It's kind of a humorous story as we read it, and we see this interaction between Jonah and God. You read it, and it, it seems very serious. It's very emotional. It also seems a little humorous how overblown this idea of the plant dying is, and Jonah just seems almost like very emotional with this passage. Uh, but when you read it and you know the whole story of what's going on here, you start to see something that's revealed in the heart of Jonah and in the heart of God. Something is illuminated out of both of them, and, I, and it's important for us to learn kind of what is being revealed and illuminated. And it's pretty easy to, to point out the fact that Jonah's angry. He was quick to anger. He's talking about God's character, and we see his real heart come out where he, he ran from going to Nineveh, not because he was scared of the Assyrians, not because he was scared of the king of Nineveh. He ran because he didn't want to preach this message that give, would give them a chance to experience God's mercy and to repent. So he runs not out of fear. He runs out of bitterness and hatred. And he says, I knew, this is exactly why I ran, Lord, because I knew that you would, you would have compassion, that you would be abounding in love and slow to anger. And when he finds out that God relents, he is quick to anger. It says that he's greatly displeased and he became angry. I think that we have a good grasp of anger right now. Would we all agree? Our culture is angry. Everyone's angry all the time. Everyone's mad. We live in this culture of outrage where we're just always angry. We're always angry. Uh, and it feels good to be angry a little bit. Let's be honest. Like That, that energy that comes out of something inside of us, uh, it, it, we have all this stuff that's just kind of like, like, like it, it's like we're just about to blow, and then we finally do, and it just feels good to get it out, to act upon that anger. Everyone's mad. We live in an angry culture. Frederick Buechner, uh, who's this great uh, author, wrote a lot about the Old Testament, says this about anger. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last twosome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger has a way of feeling good in the moment. Anger has a way of... Uh, uh, there, and, and when we talk about anger in, in, in scripture, um, it's not even condemned. Like, we can be angry. The problem is anger never truly leads to life. Anger is exhausting. And for Jonah, he's quick to anger in this passage. 
And, and what's interesting is like everything that he has gone through leading up to this moment, everything that he has seen God do, and all the things that God has, ha- has been patient with him hasn't changed his heart about the situation. He is a prophet of God. He is in tune with the word of God. He has this relationship with God, and yet he has this anger that has left him in a place that he would rather die. He has what also has been called the older brother syndrome, that I think a lot of us who feel like we have this relationship with God, that we're close to God, that we are in communion with God, we get this older brother syndrome, which comes from the story of the prodigal son. Most of you know the story of the prodigal son. There's a a father that has two sons. Uh, they're, They're brothers, an older and a younger, and the younger brother comes to his dad and he says, I'm ready for my inheritance. I want it now, which in the context means, God, I, I, would rather, I would rather you be dead so that I could have my inheritance now than to live under your house and not have my inheritance. So this must have been heartbreaking for the father, but he gives the inheritance to the son, and it's the younger brother, and he runs out, and as you know the story, he, he just blows through the inheritance on partying. Just goes through all of his inheritance, all of his resources, all of his money, and he gets to this place where he's blown through everything, and he's just at rock bottom and decides to come back to his father. And as he's coming back to the father and as the story is being told, like you just kind of have this assumption, what in the world is the father going to do? How is he going to respond to the son that wished him dead, that took his inheritance, that ran and just wasted everything? In the story, surprising, you have this father that is, that is, as he sees him coming home, runs out, greets him, is so excited to see him, says to throw a party, to kill the fattened calf. They're going to have this huge feast. They're going to celebrate because his son, who left him, who wished that he was dead, who wasted his inheritance, has returned home. And the father receives him with mercy and grace and love. But there's the, another character in the story. It's the older brother, the older son. And his response is found in Luke chapter 15. It says, now the older son was in the field as he came, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. There's a party going on back home. What's up? Who's in the hizzy? He's excited. Verse 26 says, he called one of his servants and he asked what, thing, what these things meant. Why is there a party going on? And the servant said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed a fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Hooray. The older brother's response says he became angry and he refused to go in. He wouldn't even go to the party. What? He's back after what he did to my dad, after what he did to his inheritance? He he blew through everything and he has come home and they're celebrating this? There's anger. He's quick to anger. And his father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, he said, look, these many years I served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me the young goat. You never slaughtered this calf for me. You never let me celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead. He was alive. Or the brother that you thought was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he is found. The older brother 
can't appreciate the fact that his younger brother was dead and now he's alive, that he was lost and now he was found. And what we find here is an echo of the same thing that's happening in the story of Jonah, who should have compassion and mercy for the Ninevites, this evil, wicked people that are about to experience their destruction, who have it coming and God relents. And his response isn't, isn't relief for those people. His response isn't joy that those people are going to live. He's not even having this selfish response where he's like taking credit for like, yeah, I preached a good sermon and all those people repented. He's flat out angry and bitter at God's mercy. He's furious at it. He's quick to anger. Anger has become something that is controlling his life. And the reason that he's angry is that God's mercy doesn't align with Jonah's version of justice. God's mercy doesn't align with his version of justice, what these people deserve. And God gives them mercy. Jonah's like, are you kidding me? These these terrible Ninevites, these terrible Assyrians who've, who've destroyed our northern kingdom, who have enslaved all the people that they have conquered, who do wicked act after wicked act, you are going to relent with them. And we find something that happens so often in all of us where we are able to receive the grace of God in ways that we don't deserve, but we don't necessarily like that for other people who we think deserve it. And what's fascinating is that in the midst of him being angry, God is still patient with Jonah. I mean, in this story, Jonah completely disobeys God in the first verse, ends up running away from God, God sends a storm. God pursues Jonah through the circumstance of a storm. God then sends a fish to deliver Jonah from drowning. Then God gives him a second chance after Jonah has completely disobeyed God. And then like, we have the story where he gives us this plant and this worm and, worm and the wind. And it's all for the sake of Jonah's instruction. And what God is doing here in Jonah is he's saying, I am going to accomplish my will, and it's going to be accomplished through you. But in the process, I am teaching you something. I am instructing something inside of you that you would be a certain kind of person that does my work. In the midst of everything that's happening, God's still trying to teach Jonah, and Jonah can't learn this lesson. He could do the work of God, but it hasn't transformed his heart and he's quick to anger. And then we also find that this anger, it's not just that he's quick to anger, that his anger is misguided. He's focused on the wrong thing. And his emotions just go up and down in the story. He's, he's angry that God relents, then he's happy that he has comfort, and then he's angry that that comfort is gone. And our emotions tend to reveal just the condition of our heart, and for Jonah, we see the condition of his heart. It's on display. And in this story, what happens is he goes east of the city, and even after he preaches and the people repent and he hears that God's going to relent, he's like, let's see what happens to this place. These people are so corrupt. This can't be genuine. So I'm going to go sit east of the city, build the shelter, and see what happens to this city. And as he's sitting there, God sends this plant that grows up over him. It gives him shade, and it gives him shelter, and he's happy. And he's sitting there, and he's just waiting to see what happens to the city. And then it says, God sends a worm. Like this story could be called Jonah and the worm. This worm comes, infects the plant, eats the plant. The plant withers. He wakes up the next morning. The plant's gone, and he, like, loses his mind. He just pops. Are you kidding? 
He's so mad and, and he's so angry. And it's, this, it's just like, he's just like, let me die already. He's so mad. That anger is misguided. And then we find, like, God has this conversation with him. And he's like, Are you, do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah's like, yes, I do. The plant that you sent that I had nothing to do with, that grew over my head, that gave me shelter, died. And the Lord says, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. It died overnight. There's, in this story, they talk about death a few different times. And he's concerned because this plant died. One commentary I was reading by James Lindbergh says this. The verb died that God uses here. The verb died recalls the desperate hope of the captain in the storm, worried about his sailors dying. And the king of Nineveh in chapter 3, worrying about his people dying. The verb died recalls the desperate hope of the captain and the king that their people not die. Jonah cares deeply about the death of one plant because its death reduced his own comfort level. And here we find what is really ticking Jonah off. He's more upset about the plant than he is about people. God has this heart for people. Jonah just cares about this plant that has brought him comfort. And in the same way where God's mercy doesn't align with Jonah's version of justice, Jonah's anger doesn't align with God's concern for people. God is concerned for people. For people even like the Ninevites that are far from him, that are broken, that he says they can't tell their right for their left, they are wicked. God has a concern for the lost. And this brings about the question, when it comes to our anger, anger isn't wrong. Scripture doesn't condemn anger. It says, be angry, but do not sin. But the things that we place our anger in, have you ever got more angry about the loss of comfort than lost people around you? What do we truly get fired up for as God's people? Is our own comfort? Is our own provision? Our own protection? Or do we get fired up for, there's people who are far from God and there are eternal consequences at stake. And does that guide the emotion and the energy that makes us angry? Jonah's anger is misguided. And here, yet again, what we find is that in this story, God has a tendency to take our anger and reorder it and prioritize it around his kingdom, around the things that are eternal. His heart for people. God reorders and he reprioritizes our anger to be in line with what he wants. And we find that through Jesus. We've been talking in this whole story of Jonah. There's this strange parallel that, that compares and contrasts Jesus throughout his life in the Gospels, where we see Jonah do something and Jesus does something. Jonah's in a storm, Jesus is in a storm. Jonah gets thrown into the the, the the sea to calm the storm, Jesus rises up and calms the storm. There's all these comparisons and contrastions between Jonah and Jesus. And we have one that is just fascinating in Matthew chapter 23 because Jesus is talking about another city that's about to experience a destruction. And that city is Jerusalem. And he goes to the east of Jerusalem and he has words for Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, verse 37, 
He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is grieving and crying out and weeping over the destruction of the city. And here's where we find this contrast between Jonah and Jesus. They're both east of the city that's about to experience destruction. Jonah hopes for destruction of his enemies. Jesus weeps for the destruction of this city, of these people who would eventually crucify him. He weeps for them. God reorders our anger from hoping for the destruction of those who are our enemies to seeing how Jesus weeps for the destruction. For Jesus is about transforming these people's hearts. There's this eternal purpose to this mission that Jesus has and this mission that he commissions, commissions us, his followers, to have. Jonah hopes for destruction. Jesus weeps. And Jonah, it says that God cares for the city, concerned. It's the idea that that cares means that he, he literally, tears are brought to his eyes for the people of Nineveh. God says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who could not tell their right hand from their left, and so many animals. We can talk about what the animals meant. I think it means it's their economy, it's their provision. He's concerned about more than, he's concerned about Nineveh. He doesn't want this place, his heart goes out to this place that is far from him. God has this great concern, and Jonah completely misses it. We think about this, window in the Christ Church Cathedral in Oxford. As the light comes in, it shines this light on the city and it tells the story that God's heart is for the cities of this world, for the people of this world. And so often we can miss it like Jonah. We can get caught up in our own comfort, get caught up in our own agenda. Christ has a way of shining light into what our focus should be on. As God's church, as the body of Christ, our focus reaching out to the lost. We're just finishing up this, this book of Jonah. It's been, this is the seventh week that we've been in it. It has a way of revealing a couple of things. One, God's heart for the lost of this world, those who are far from him, those who are broken, those that are on this path that will lead to destruction. And it has a way of it exposing what's going on inside of us. So often we identify with Jonah. So many of the scholars said that Jonah is representing Israel, the people of God. What's going on inside of our heart? As we close, Tim Keller summarizes this whole book. He says, the book of Jonah yields many insights into God's love for societies and people beyond the community of believers. It's not just about the insiders. It's about the outsiders as well. About his opposition to toxic nationalism, disdain for other races and ethnicities. These people despise the Ninevites. And about how to be in mission in the world despite the subtle and avoidable power of idolatry in our own lives and hearts. Grasping these insights can make us bridge builders, peacemakers, and agents of reconciliation in this world. And such people 
are the need of the hour. I love that line. Such people are the need of the hour. Peacemakers, bridge builders, agents of reconciliation in this world. I want to close with uh, the whole series we're closing uh, today. But I want to close with this hymn that was written by John Newton. He was a pastor back in the 1700s. And he wrote a series of hymns that were based off the story of Jonah. And off this chapter of Jonah sitting under the plant, looking out at the city. And, and I, I feel like this hymn is just great for us as we reflect on God's heart and what's going on inside of our own hearts. As John writes this hymn, he talks about like the plant. He calls it a gourd. So when you hear the word gourd, that's what it means. It's a strange word. But let me just read this, and then we'll close with the time of worship. John Newton writes this hymn. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith, in love, and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and see more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from death and pride to set thee free, to break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou may find thy all in me. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this story, this ancient story, that's so old and yet still so true. Lord, we see your heart for people who are far from you. We see your call on your people as a mission to share the story of your salvation. And how often as religious people who can, can get caught up in our own lives, we can miss the urgency of our message. And Lord, we want to, to be in tune with your heart. Lord, we want to have anger oriented in the right ways, the things that, that make you angry. Lord, we want to not only just be recipients of your grace, but be dispensers of it, that we would be people who, who take this gift of salvation, not just for ourselves, but, but are sharing it with others. Lord, we ask that you would continue to illuminate and shine light on things that are important for us here and now, the things that we should be focused on. Lord, let us contemplate your concern even for places like Nineveh. Lord, as we do your work, may you continue to transform us to be more like you. And in the midst of this pandemic, Lord, May we not miss the lessons that you're teaching us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.